Hey everyone, this is Daylon James. Welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Today we have part one of a special mini-series of episodes that were recorded at the 2019 ISSCR annual meeting back in June. I attended the meeting and was fortunate enough to have some great conversations with researchers from all over the world about their work, about the meeting, and some of the biggest challenges facing stem cell research as a whole. Today, we're going to be hearing from some junior trainees about their thoughts on some of the most interesting research presented at the meeting, and we'll be following that up with some in-depth conversations with five senior researchers, including Dr. Senta Georgia at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, Tanil Ludwig from YCell, Kim Jensen at the University of Copenhagen, Daniel Besser at the German Stem Cell Network, and last, but of course not least, the one and only Sir John Gurdon, Nobel Laureate. I should also say, as a disclaimer, he is my mentor's mentor's mentor, my scientific great-grandfather, so to speak, so you're going to hear a great conversation there from, you know, through the lineage, let's say, from one great man to a lesser, lesser, lesser man. We're going to be talking to all those people about everything from their science to regulations governing stem cell research to the current peer review system. I promise it's a jam-packed episode, but before we jump into things, did you know that this past June stem cell hosted their annual stem selfie contest? 20 stem cell imagers were selected for live voting on Facebook, and Mary Heather Florido at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center was announced as a grand prize winner. That's a beautiful image. Got to check that out. However, stem cell received so many incredible submissions that they decided to feature all the stem selfies on their website for the world to see. Take a peek at this gallery at www.stemcell.com slash stem selfie. That's S-T-E-M-C-E-L-L-F-I-E. Check out those pics. You won't regret it. Back to today's episode, we're going to start things off by embracing the youth theme of this year's ISSCR annual meeting, hearing from some trainees about the most exciting research that they saw while in attendance, starting with Amritha Jassishankar, Associate Director of the Maryland Stem Cell Research Fund. So not really a trainee after all. Amritha, what is the most exciting research that you've seen at the meeting so far? Um, so the first day I attended a few sessions on clinical trials, and this is something we're very passionate about in the Maryland Stem Cell Research Fund. And so I found those talks really interesting to see how much the research is being translated into the clinic. So I started working with IPS cells as a graduate student in 2006, and to see them actually being used to treat people right now is really exciting for me to watch. Up next, we have Aaron Sandoval, an undergraduate at the University of Florida. Aaron, tell us, what's the most exciting research that you've seen at the meeting? Um, so there was a talk by Carl Curler, hoping I, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, but he was giving a talk on skin organoids, and what was special about his talk was that he was able to get hair, hair, fall, hair to grow out of his skin organoids, um, which is really, really cool. And then taking those skin organoids, he was then able to implant it into a nude mouse, 
and get the nude mouse to grow hair, which is really, really interesting because um, it kind of relates to my research as well. When we get hurt or when a regular mouse gets hurt, the scar that heals over after the injury is hairless. There's no hair. But mm. in the spiny mouse, it does regenerate hair. So it was interesting to see that he was able to mm. grow hair in this organoid model. So I kind of just got the cogs turning in my head, thinking about maybe if we did like a spiny mouse organoid, what would, what, how, what would that be? So we could, it, it was just kind of really, really interesting. And it's, it looked really, really creepy, but kind of caught my attention. <laughs> and now we have Ana Rita Leitoguino. Originally from Portugal, and now a graduate student at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, Australia. Anna, what is the most exciting research that you've seen so far at the ISSCR annual meeting? I remember when I first got in, there was this work that I had no idea was being done with uh, transplantable uh, hair follicles, mm. and they were doing some amazing work and just generating hair follicles using just embryonic stem cells. And I'm, this is this I had no idea that, that and that that's wonderful to see. You know, sometimes you you are in this field and you're so focused in my case blood and stuff, then you just forget that there's an entire realm of stem cell uh, technologies and stuff being being done. And to have something like in hair, which is something that in my mind this is just so immediately applicable. Like you can mm. see the hair follicles. Yeah, like it, it clearly, see. yeah. It clearly works. In 10 minutes, I could understand this entire thing, and I could see the potential, and it's just it's amazing. It's, 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 you cannot not be impressed by what these people are doing. So, so that was the first day. <laughs> that was the first day. And then today, I just saw this amazing talk by uh, John Dick this morning, and he was, he's just amazing. So he's using um, stem cells to model AML, leukemias, lineage tracing, and it's just, he's doing so much good work, his entire team, and he seemed like a lovely guy as well. So I, I was just I was just mesmerized by what he was doing, the amount of work he did, oh, yeah. and also the type of work. It, it just seemed, you know, these things are moving very, very quick, and it, it feels like everyone is getting somewhere really, really quick as well. So it's just like, oh, I cannot believe he did this. This is very important. This is actually super cool. Now we got Alex, or Alejandro Torres, who is an entering graduate student at the University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, and he worked as a tech for two years. So this is a guy who really wants it, you know? Some people, they're like, ah, grad school, because it's the next thing. What is the most exciting research that you've seen so far at the meeting? I think the most exciting talk I was interested in was the uh, one about uh, formative states. So there's been a lot of research on prime PAS and uh, naive cells and it's interesting to know that there is a, a transition state that might be more optimal for differentiation and that was that struck me as a uh, new and novel I even heard about that this entire like, time and I haven't heard about any of that since that talk mm -hmm. uh, Ben Novich did give a talk uh, where he was also seeing something like a transition state that he believed knowing he believed that it might be uh, exactly the same as the other talk with the formative state. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see that not, there's also other PIs that have been thinking about there might be a transition state, but they didn't have a name to it, and now there is. And next, we have Oriana Genelette, a graduate student at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, Germany. Oriana, what's the most exciting research that you've seen thus far at this meeting? 
Um, I thought uh, the research from Dr. Nishi Nakamura was actually pretty exciting. Um, he's trying to grow um, kidneys in vitro, and he has managed to go to grow the um, glomeruli mm -hmm. pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, and he, I, I think the research is not not super concluded. He still needs to um, make this ductus that takes, let's say, the the, the, the fluid out from the kidney, but. Mm -hmm. Um, at least I think it, it, it filters um, the blood, so um, it's, I, I guess, quite functional and quite underway, I would say. So that was pretty impressive. We got a great one now, guys. Ojeni Tuma, who's a CIRM intern repping San Diego State University here at the ISSCR. Most exciting research that you've seen so far at the ISSCR. Uh, I would say, actually, it was a talk that I went to today, probably going to be an unorthodox answer. Uh, it was about ethics, and uh, an undergraduate researcher was um, examining clinics that claim to give legitimate stem cell therapies, mm -hmm. and uh, the legitimacy behind those and whether or not the doctors actually performing those therapies were board certified, um, you know, had uh, credentials, things like that. I just thought that was very interesting. And now? My peeps, we have Vivian Liu from UCLA. She's a third-year graduate student. What's the most exciting research that you've seen so far at the ISSCR this year? I think the most interesting thing I saw was when they had super resolution like microscopy to mm. look at the chromatin structure. Mm. And they were able to look at molecules like that are one nanometer big, and that was really, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> because they were able to show like how transcription works exactly. like. The time scale and like the kind of how many um, base pairs each message in RNA is. Chromatin at nanoscale resolution. Pretty neat stuff. So there you have it, folks. Some of the most interesting and exciting research at this year's ISSCR annual meeting is told by actual research trainees in attendance. And we'll be hearing more from them in upcoming episodes as well. Now, before we get into some of the longer conversations that we had at the meeting, Stem Cell Technologies has something they would like to say. As research using pluripotent stem cells advances toward the clinic, there is a renewed focus on cell quality. Visit www.stemcell.com slash cell quality to explore ways to assess your human pluripotent stem cells and learn about essential quality attributes to consider for gene editing, disease modeling, and maintenance. All right, we're now going to move on to some conversations with some big-name researchers. Not that the others were small-name researchers. Some of them had very long names, beautiful names, and they're doing important work. But we got some people here who have already repped hard in the field, and we talked with them about everything from their science to how they first got into research. All right, guys, we have the pleasure of having Senta Georgia, who runs a lab at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, trying to understand how we can produce insulin producing cells to treat diabetes. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with us for a minute here, Dr. Georgia. Please tell us more about uh, your research program. Um, my lab at Children's Hospital focuses on um, three different ways that we can make new insulin cells for people who have diabetes. We think about beta cell differentiation. And so where do beta cells come from during development? Um, and we use both animal and human cell models to, to study that, we think about beta cell replication. And so what are the uh, factors and the molecules that are responsible for either 
forcing beta cells to replicate or keeping them from replicating because beta cells, human beta cells especially, do not self-renew very easily. And then we also think about regeneration from other tissues and reprogramming. And so how can we take closely related tissues to your beta cells, such as either other types of pancreatic tissue or closely related gastrointestinal tissue, and get those cells to produce insulin in a way that would be helpful to ameliorate diabetes? Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot about diabetes over the last 20 years. I think that's one of the, the primary uh, cases. It's kind of the test case for stem cells. I think a lot of people think of treating diabetes when I think of stem cells. It's, it's what's been in the popular media. Um, what's your take on the progress that we've made since you know, we made all these promises at the turn of the millennium? Do you think that we're on pace? You know, it's funny. Um, I... I'm just starting to realize how old I actually am because I don't think I'm as old as I am in my head. When, because when I got into studying pancreatic development and diabetes was really just as stem cells, especially human embryonic stem cells was coming onto the scene. And so my first, I remember being in college and reading the first papers about human embryonic stem cells being um, cultured um, out in Madison. And then when I started my first job out of college and um, we started doing pancreatic development and I watched the evolution of the first protocols to come out for actually um, efficiently differentiating cells, um, human embryonic stem cells into um, insulin secreting cells and I've seen the trajectory of the field. And so um, I think that we have come a long way. The thing that's really hard about it is that Diabet patients that have diabetes have been promised a cure for a very long time. Um, I mean, since the first discovery of insulin to being able to mass produce insulin on a recombinant level to um, gene therapy in the late 80s and early 90s and the promises that were there and now to stem cell therapy, um, I think that people who have diabetes have been promised a cure for a long time and they're still waiting when in reality, we've made a lot of progress um, just in the short time that we've known how to culture pluripotent stem cells. And so um, I know that everybody wants something right now, but there, in addition to my lab, there are hundreds, if not thousands of scientists around the world trying to tackle this problem um, for you know, the millions of people that do have diabetes. And so I want to say, I know it's hard, and it, I'm not saying this um, from a disconnected way, but be patient because you don't want something that doesn't work. Right. And that's what we're working on is trying to make it work. Yeah, and you talk about what works. You know, I think what captured the imagination so many years ago, and it's kind of hard once you create that template of the future being cell-based, and I think a lot of people who are still holding on to that idea are maybe not hearing about the developments. Like what you're working on, it seems like you alluded to that it's not just about putting cells in, but sometimes you can exploit the existing cells that, you know, that are there that aren't beta cells, but you can coax them into <laughs> serving functionally, at least, as beta cells. Do you think ultimately, given the, the risks associated with any cultured thing going back into a human and the regulatory apparatus that's going to be necessary to, to make that safe. Do you, do you, are you of the mind, that are you more focused in, in your research program on alternatives that exploit the endogenous cellular uh, 
subsets? You know, that's a really good question. And I think that the reason why sometimes our progress in the differentiating stem cell model is a little bit slow is because that we can really only understand how to do that based on our mouse models. Mm. And fundamentally, the mechanisms are different. Even if they're just slightly different, those slight differences kind of hold us back. And I think that we can use other human tissue models um, and tissue donations to understand that, but it's still an ex vivo look and we're trying to recreate something ex vivo that's happening in vivo that we don't understand all of the factors that contribute. So I think that that's one of the reasons why it's slow, but I don't think that it is any safer for me to try to make your endogenous beta cells replicate because that can turn into cancer. Um, than to put um, purified stem cell derived beta cells under your skin or in an encapsulation device it's because they might not work, they might escape and they might cause cancer. Um, and um, reprogramming, endogenous um, reprogramming is also something that's going to be very difficult. Um, what my lab, one of the approaches that my lab was doing was to look at um, using um, ductal cells from pancreas organ donations to actually try to reprogram these cells ex vivo mm. as a cellular therapy for transplantation, just like an eyelid transplantation. Um, but actual in vivo programming is also very dangerous. And so until we can have um, mechanisms that are, can truly target small molecules and we understand how to turn things on and off efficiently and effectively, I think that all three approaches have just as many regulatory and health concerns as using stem cell therapy. And in some ways, stem cell therapy might be safer. Hmm. So yeah, with any kind of cellular therapy, there's, you know, people I think oversimplify. You, know, you make the cell, you put it in, the cell does the work. But in the body, 3D, fundamentally, it's the 3D thing, you know, the vasculature <laughs> and all associated cell types that can make up the superstructure. There was just a paper a few weeks back uh, showing that you could dramatically increase the engraftment efficiency, I guess, of, of cadaveric beta islets by, um, by it was inhibiting something and whatnot. But the, the point being is that the vasculature was a huge component. You had to really augment the ability of the, the islets in this case because they were you know, severed from the vasculature and then they have to reastomose and reperfuse. Re Do you think that we're ever going to get over that hurdle. I mean, you can speak specifically to, to beta islets or, or insulin uh, cell, cell therapies for diabetes and associated diseases, metabolic disease, but, but fundamentally, in graphene, it's, it's not so simple as just the cell. Do you think we'll be able to overcome the limitations uh, uh, on, on efficient engraftment that? I do. Um, and I think that some of the hydrogels, um, engineering capacities that are coming out and the ideas that people have with the geometry and being able to use synthetic biology mm. to um, reorganize cells and to put them in the proximity to each other to differentiate, to initiate cell-cell signaling between each other is are the type of things that are actually going to get us to the point where we can build multicellular or 
units that can more efficiently be engrafted. And so um, as well as being a part of Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, I'm also a member of the USD Department of Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine. And we have colleagues there that are working on just those problems. And so um, it is great to be a part of a collaboration and a collaborative institute where one person can think about how do we get the cells to this place? Another person can think about how do we build a structure for these cells to grow on? And then I can be the person that says, okay, we have these cells here. We know that they can grow. Here are the factors that they take to make the structure that we're talking about and really try to come all together to be able to deliver a product that one day could be more efficient than the means that we're using now. So you did say earlier that you're realizing how old you are, but I have to break it to you. You're still a young scientist, okay? <laughs> and uh, the emphasis here is, is young science at the ISSCR. It's young scientists and, and elevating them and really profiling their work and giving them prominence. Do you think it's been effective? I think, well, I don't think we'll be able to measure its effectiveness mm -hmm. for a few years. Mm -hmm. I do know that um, even as a young scientist, I have been very encouraged by talking to some of the postdocs students that I've met here. Um, I've been very encouraged being at the Women in Science lunch that was held at the ISSCR and um, seeing how many women that there are here and that are active in um, stem cell research in all of the various fields. And so I do think that it will be productive. I think it's one of those things that bears long-term fruit. And um, in addition to thinking about young scientists, we also have to think about gender, um, whether it be female scientists or transgender scientists, and also thinking about underrepresented minorities. and. Um, continuing to be able to highlight them because we already know that there aren't a lot of them in the upper echelons of the pipeline. And so being able to cultivate their interest and their participation in these types of events um, now will um, increase their participation in the future. Hmm. So we're talking inclusion across all parameters. I think we, we, is what I'm getting, that we need to be more inclusive across the board. We do, and, and inclusive and diverse, and that should also trickle down into the type of work that we do, right? Because our patient populations that tend to sign up for clinical trials aren't necessarily representative of the entire, um, of, of the entire breadth and the fabric of our society. And so, so you're saying we're only curing rich white men. Not rich white men, just white men. Mostly, <laughs> mostly, well, but I say, I say that we all have disease. Yeah. And so by having people who are not white men work on diseases, we will bring mm. that those sorts of alternative therapies or alternative approaches to bringing to, to providing therapy mm -hmm. to these other populations. Yeah, well, it's not too long ago that they recognized that, wow, we've been doing all these studies on male mice because female mice are a pain in the ass with their cycling. And like that really was affecting, there was like the conclusions, you know, it turns mm -hmm. out we were, we were looking at things through only one half uh, of the lens there. Um, and I think, like you said, the same is true in human subjects and the same is true in terms of the perspective, you know, it's who's doing the looking that oftentimes really informs the results. Um, but that said, you know, at this meeting, you have the best of the best, uh, or at least the recognized best, and, and they come in all shapes and, and genders. I mean, I don't know about all, all inclusive. Um, 
Well, I, it's also, you can say that because I, in talking to people who have helped organize the meeting, they mm -hmm. do specific outreach to make sure mm -hmm. that they invite women. They make sure that they try to invite underrepresented minority mm -hmm. of speakers so that you do see that. But that's not something that happens randomly. It actually takes a conscious effort mm -hmm. to pursue having such a wide breadth of investigators. They make a conscious effort to bring in young investigators. And I think that that is important. And I think it's been at least moderately effective, not knowing what the outcome is going to be, but at least looking at the talks and looking at the breadth of, of attendees and trainees that, you know, they get to see this amazing science from all different types of people and, and create new heroes or new, uh, at least role models. What for you has been the most impressive science that you've seen here at the talk? I mean, I don't, you don't necessarily have to single anyone out, but if you'd like to talk about any particular science, that you uh, observed here that really blew your mind. I would love to hear it. Um, I would have to say that some of the organoid imaging that I have seen and how these organoids are really helping us improve our understanding of disease models ex vivo, um, I think that that's the most powerful stuff for me. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that being able to um, model disease either from iPSCs or from adult um, stem cells and most importantly from patient-derived samples is really how we're going to start to understand a lot of disease mechanisms. And so um, the organoid modeling and especially the amazing imaging that can come from that so that you can watch in real time how cells are interacting and what um, um, how cells are, are metabolizing and how changes in metabolism or changes in cell-cell interaction are underlying the mechanisms of disease are the things that I feel like are really at the forefront and the cutting edge of how we're going to start thinking about disease. Okay, and finally, you know, not to end on a critical note, but what would you like to see more of next year at the ISSCR if you uh, are able to attend? Well, I always love to talk about beta cells. And so um, I went to the endoderm plenary today and there wasn't a beta cell talk. Oh. There's lots of liver, some gut, even a lung talk, but it was like we were totally missed in that whole lower half of the GI tract. All right, so more beta cells next year. I'm sure they're gonna make it up to you, Santa. Uh, you know, diabetes is a big deal uh, in the US and, and they always do cater to the, to the needs of the US, if not the whole world. Um, Senta, thank you for joining us. This was Senta Georgia, who uh, runs a lab at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, working on diabetes and beta cells and understanding how we can apply them in a way that works. Thanks so much. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. All right, we have the pleasure of having Tanil Ludwig with us now. She's the director of the Y-Cell Stem Cell Bank. You guys may know Y-Cell because they are kind of, you know, it. They, they, were the repository that held the initial ES cell lines that were very widely disseminated. And they had to set up this whole institute, in fact, to deal with that demand. And Tanil here is running the show. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to. So why don't you start by telling us, you know, how did you get, how'd you find yourself at the Y-Cell? What's your, your kind of journey, professional journey from training to the directorship? Um, I started, uh, I did a postdoc with Jamie Thompson in his lab at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and at the time, back in the day, Jamie's lab and Y-Cell, um, unlike now, were very interconnected. So um, Jamie was working in somewhat limited space in the Primate Center, uh, and there was space for some of the investigators at Y-Cell. 
Um, so a lot of us were working there. YSL was originally established, as you said, to sort of deal with the political mm -hmm. uncertainty of the distribution of the materials initially. There was a, uh, um, the US government hadn't made a ruling on whether or not uh, embryonic stem cells would be considered as embryonic tissue. So um, this is pre-August 9th, 2001? Pre-August pre okay. 9th to pre-August 9th, 2001. That was the yeah, Bush restrictions. The Bush restrictions. Yeah, yeah. So until that day, uh, none of the stem cell research could happen on campus. It mm -hmm. jeopardized the federal funding for not just stem cell research on campus, but all of the grant funding on campus could essentially shut down the university. Um, so Wharf established YCell, put about a million dollars into establishing this building uh, and the space for people to go and be able to do the research off campus in a privately funded mm -hmm. facility until it was possible to do it on campus. So um, some of the research was, the stem cell research was happening at YSL facility, um, and the members of Jamie's lab were over there working on that. And we also had some people doing non-stem cell things at the Primate Center. Um, August 1st, 2001, the rules change. You can move on campus. I'm a postdoc in Jamie's lab. I worked with him through, um, through about 2007, uh, and we had finished some media development projects. Um, and uh, Jamie said, we're moving away from it. I had grant funding through YCell to continue media work. And he said, maybe you want to consider working directly for YCell. And I said, sounds good. <laughs> uh, at the time, I was physically working at YCell already. I had my team over at the YCell location. So we were physically separate from Jamie's lab, although still very much a part of Jamie's lab. Um, so my my desk didn't change. The lab didn't change. My team didn't change. The work we were doing didn't change. The name on my paycheck changed. And the that salary? was about it. Uh, okay, maybe a little bit there. Not as much as you might think. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, the, that was the only thing that changed. Mm -hmm. And then, so I was hired directly into YSL and then the members of my team were hired directly into YSL. And at the time we were doing media development there. Um, and then uh, ultimately um, I took over also the distribution and quality control um, for YSL and I've been working there ever since. So I'm, I'm guessing about 12 years now if I do the math, mm. so. So yeah, I, I just want to emphasize that this was a, this is kind of the energy around the stem cell field everywhere. It was this idea we needed to create safe space because oh, yeah. there, you weren't allowed. And it was like you said, or alluded to, or you said it. I mean, it wasn't just the research that wouldn't be funded, but if any amount of research, if you paid for one light bulb, that was the famous thing. If one light bulb in the lab is paid for, you know, with NIH funding, then that's a breach of uh, the arrangement. You're going to lose all your funding. So it was a real hostile. It was a dangerous time, it seemed, to be a stem cell research. We had to create all these safe spaces. Um, Even and within YSL, we had to create them. So we were working, um, we had, uh, after the Bush decision, um, we had all of this private space, was privately funded. Um, YSL was then awarded the National Stem Cell Bank contract mm -hmm. from the U.S. government. So now we are working with federal funding. Mm -hmm. um, but we were also, at the time, continuing to do derivations. We don't any longer, but we did. Derivations can't be done with federal money. Mm -hmm. So now we have to divide up the space very carefully. You have to label everything. Was this bought with federal money? Mm -hmm. Was this bought with private money? And um, we had different rooms. This is a federal room. This is a private room. So you, so, you know, couldn't... 
um, you had to keep track of time cards very, very carefully. You know, are you working on a federal project? Are you, you had to, we had different funding streams, different people working at the organization that couldn't go into certain rooms because they were not federally funded and there was federally funded projects. And it was, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it was aggravating. It was very, you had to fi keep track of all the financials separately. And uh, yeah, it was, you had to be very, very careful. And you still do. So um, if you're doing work that is not eligible for federal funding and you're in a federally funded facility, you have mm -hmm. to be exceptionally careful and, and keep track. Although the situation has changed partly because of the science, partly because of the politics. You know, uh, when Obama, okay, I think when Obama was uh, president, he kind of had a, Put a new line in the sand is that right so all the lines that had been derived up until that point were eligible and still to this day now anything new you can't have federal funding for am i, am I right there with the obama with, Bush. with obama he kind of had a let everything that was already in play go and but no new lines I no think. almost exactly the opposite oh really so the bush decision allowed 21 cell lines to be approved for federal funding mm -hmm. um and the and it was it was a very clear line it was if they were derived before this date mm -hmm. they were eligible if they were derived after that date they were not um there could be no difference between them other than the day of the derivation. Mm -hmm. Obama came in and said, I don't care about the day of derivation. What we care about is the ethical provenance of the cell line. Mm -hmm. If they were derived ethically, um, and if they meet a certain criteria in that respect, then we're going to approve them for use in federal, regardless mm -hmm. of the day. So not, but in order to be approved under Obama, you had to resubmit. So not all of not all of the groups that with the original 21 lines chose to really? resubmit. So lines that were approved under Bush are now not approved. Are not currently approved because wow. the, uh, well, not all of the groups that originally deposited were U.S. groups. Mm -hmm. And so while it made sense for them at the time to go through the hassle because they had they were getting grant money for it. And, right. you know, there was a financial incentive. Um, you know, if you're based out of, oh, I don't know. Uh, it's hard for me. I, I can't think Australia. of it. They I, made a bunch Australia. Australia. Yeah. Australia. We'll say Australia. Um, I don't think any of them. So it's a good one to use because it doesn't actually point. <laughs> um, and they said, okay, you've got to go through this hassle. And by the way, it's a quite an application process and you're going to have to get all this stuff up. They're like, yeah, I, you know, I'm good with it. Yeah. We, we don't need U.S. approval to use them in Australia. Mm. Um, some of it, and it's, you know, there's always been some people are like, what well, did they, did they do it for a reason? Did they not do it for a reason? I don't know. All I know is they didn't. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, some of the ones that were originally approved are not currently approved. And a lot of the ones that were not originally approved aren't, you can now get federal funding on. So it really opened up the field to use a wide number of cell lines mm -hmm. um, that could not have been used with federal funding before. So it allows, it was, in my opinion, a good move. It allows for a lot more um, lines to be out there. Uh, it, it was, uh, it was a little bit of a hassle at the time to have to go through the reapproval process. It took some time, but now yeah. we focus more on the ethics than we do the date. Which I think is sensible, yes? I yes. Think the date seems pretty arbitrary. The other thing, though, is the science, right, with IPS cells. So is that, do you think, I guess, is it, uh, now that it's not so charged, because it seems like the dust has settled and, and people have found other things to be irate about and lobby about, um, is that a relief? For you or is that you know take away does that take you know bona fide ESLs out of the limelight do you think uh, like there's still a, really a real, there's still a really important need like this is oh, I yeah. guess I don't want to 
put, put it too on the nose, but YSL exists for a reason, right? You guys have a new mandate now, or a revised mandate now. Though. What is that? What's what's the the goals now and, and the ambition of, of YSL? So we're very mission, y, YSL is very mission driven. We're a small nonprofit organization. We have 20 people in-house and we have a number of employees that work um, offsite sort of through the cloud. Um, we have always, as a nonprofit, we're very, always been mission focused. Our primary mission is to serve the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They're our primary beneficiary as a nonprofit and we serve as their core. Our secondary mission is to support stem cell research um, and technologies through application, uh, including clinical trial globally. Um, and we hope that we help the researchers do that. Primarily we do that through the distribution of quality cell lines um, that we have vetted and characterized to make sure that when people get them, they can get off to a running start. Mm -hmm. We were originally five, Jamie's five original cell lines. Then we moved to 21 with the National Stem Cell Bank. That ended in 2010. Um, we opened up to ES cells in 2007. We did the first distribution globally of, of I'm sorry, of IPS cells. Mm -hmm. um, because we distributed, I think Jamie's paper was published on a Wednesday. We did the first distribution on the Friday. Mm -hmm. Thursday was Thanksgiving. So. Um, and we continue to do that. So now we went from the five lines, now we have close to 1,500 um, that we distribute. We work with large consortiums to get their materials in and banked and distributed. Um, we do a lot of characterization work to make sure that the material is quality. We do contract banking for groups that have developed their own lines but don't want to distribute them, want to hold them privately. We'll bank them and characterize them and return them. Uh, do a lot of cytogenetic testing. We work with international consortia um, to both the International Stem Cell Initiative and the International Banking Forum. We're involved with HIPSREG. Um, I'd like to see all these cell lines registered to clear up any confusion in the nomenclature within the literature uh, and to make sure that we're following the ethical provenance of all the lines that are being used, whether ES or IPS. So um, we take that kind of stuff seriously. We want to be a benefit to the scientific community. We want to enable the technology and advance it and support it as much as possible. So. Um, I think the original question you asked was alluding to ES versus IPS. No, 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 of, no, no. I said, what's the mission? What's the mission of, of, of YSL? And you yeah. just nailed it. That's us. And so. also, I'd, I'll say you've been at the meeting year over year, usually with a big pile of cheese from Wisconsin. We but. try. We try. I'm, you know, cheese is a passion. I am from Wisconsin. We like the cows. We like the cheese. So um, it's a big draw. Uh, you get a lot of interaction with all the scientists. And of course, you, you get a, a lot of insight into the science. Um, because, you know, you have a vested interest being a supplier of all these cells. What, what's your, what have you been most impressed and surprised by over the course of the arc of, of stem cells in these, let's say, 20 years now, since the first derivation, which was in the lab that you were working in, like you've really been in it from, from beginning to, to now, not end, but from the beginning, what really, what stands out? For you is the, the thing that maybe you expected least or the thing that you, you have been most wowed by you know i'm always i'm always surprised at what surprises me right um ips cells obviously you know probably the biggest one because until it happened we were convinced it couldn't happen you know the dogma was on you can't you know once you're differentiated you can't undifferentiate it uh, and then dolly happened mm -hmm. um and then okay well maybe we can make a stem cell and they're like, well, but we can only make them from these early cells. We couldn't possibly make them from adult cells. Well, guess what? Maybe you can. Um, and it always seems that 
science just pushes the edge of that envelope. Um, I'm through believing that we can't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I just believe that we haven't done it yet. So, because every time I've convinced myself that it's just not possible, somebody breaks that barrier. You know, now we're looking at gene editing. You know, five years ago, gene editing was very difficult, very expensive. And now we have Cas CRISPR technology and you can do it easily and cheaply. And you don't have to go find somebody who knows how to do this very, people are doing it in their labs every day. And it's, it becomes, the edge just keeps getting pushed, you know? And uh, somebody asked me recently, you know, where do you think we'll be in five years? Oh, I have no <laughs> idea. I didn't imagine we'd be here five years ago. So I, I am going to wait to be, astounded by where we end up five years from now. Yeah, I'm always surprised as well. Yoda said it best. There is no can't, right? And we're going to do it. There is no do not either. I think there's he would revise that. There's, there's only there's try. No yeah. Yeah, there, is that how he said it? I misquoted Yoda. When yeah. nailed. Well, you might know better than me. <laughs> um, anyway, thanks so much for joining us, Daniil. This has been a real delight. My pleasure. All right. We have the pleasure this morning of having Dr. Kim Jensen with us. We're at the ISSCR meeting and he agreed to talk to us for just a bit. Kim Jensen is an associate professor at the Danish Stem Cell Center at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. He did his PhD at the University of Aarhus and joined Fiona Watts Group for his postdoctoral training. Uh, had his first faculty position at the Stem Cell Institute, University of Cambridge, UK, before moving to Copenhagen in 2013. He's interested in the molecular mechanisms that govern cell, stem cell fate specification and how extracellular signals integrate with gene regulatory networks to control tissue maturation and cellular plasticity in developing an adult epithelia. I go on. By combining studies using mouse models and clinical specimens, the long-term aim of the research in the Jensen lab is to translate results from in vitro and in vivo models into regenerative therapies. But who am I to tell you what he does? Kim. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your research focus first? Thanks, thanks again for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, so for many years, I've been fascinated by how our tissues are maintained long-term, uh, and in particular, how these uh, tissues, when we're focusing on both the skin as well as the intestine, can be capable of uh, repairing following very severe damage. Uh, and uh, we hope uh, that if we can begin to, to understand uh, how stem cells are regulated, this will provide us with insights into how we can be able to enhance tissue repair under such circumstances. Uh, and here we are using combination of uh, uh, organoid models for the intestine uh, with animal models in order to define uh, how stem cells are regulated at the molecular level. Uh, here we are taking advantage of a number of new sequencing technologies. We are doing fate mapping where we can follow how individual cells are contributing uh, to the growth of organoids, but also in vivo to the maintenance of tissues. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then we've just begun to, to do CRISPR screens uh, in order to see whether we can identify genes that are functionally important, mm -hmm. uh, both in vitro and in vivo. 
Right. So you, you just stepping back, you mentioned that your original focus or initial focus, primary focus, major focus is on the skin and intestine, presumably because there's the, the stem cells that have the most turnover in, in their adult lifespan. Just elaborate on that, specifically with respect to the intestine, because your most recent big story was there. What is the potency? What is the, 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 the what's so great? Uh, and important about this model, the intestinal stem cell model, uh, and how, how can we kind of leverage that model just generally as well as specifically in the intestine to, to learn about stem cells and, and apply that knowledge to translational approaches? So up until 2010, uh, 2009, to be honest, uh, I'd only ever touched an intestine once. Well, that's more, one more than most of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, after seeing the, 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 the seminal paper from uh, uh, Hans Clevis's lab, where they first uh, published the organoid model, uh, I, was, I, was, I, I was sold. You know, I, uh, starting my lab in 2010, you know, this was this 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 was this was a must for me to just try and see whether this system was so robust. Mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, this for the first time provided a fully defined uh, culture method for uh, looking at cells from essentially any. Uh, part of the intestine mm -hmm. uh, and thereby allowing uh, us to potentially uh, address in, 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 a, in a controlled setting how, how genes could be important uh, in, in a much more comprehensive way than by working with animal models. Mm -hmm. uh, each and every one of us is on a daily basis producing many, many grams of cells mm -hmm. from the intestine. So, so, so in the intestine, in every one of us, you know, stem cells are doing something on a regular basis. Right. And without these stem cells, we will be dead. Uh, so, 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 you know, it, 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 is, it is an amazing system uh, to study because stem cells are so important. Mm -hmm. uh, with regard to the to the stem cell hierarchy, uh, this is something that that, that we are of course uh, looking into right now. But I think uh, there's there's no doubt that these LGR five expressing stem cells that are located at the bottom of crypts, intercalated between pannet cells, th these are obviously important during steady state homeostasis. Mm -hmm. However, there are exciting new findings in the field. Uh, that shows that you know if you get rid of these, then other cells can can go back into this position mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and become now stem cells. So I, I think I think this this is this is one of one of the areas uh, to me where the, where there will be big discoveries in in the future because you know we need if we can figure out how how we can take a cell that's not a stem cell any longer and convert it back into a, to to this stem cell state, mm -hmm. you know. That this provides opportunities, mm. uh, and I think nature is exploiting this during development. And this was what we showed in our recent paper. Right, I'm going to get to that. I just want to say it totally makes sense, right? Like 
if you have a system that's making grams and grams, just, you know, over the course of your lifetime, I think Hans said, uh, yes, or two days ago in his talk that like we're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of cell divisions for the, for the stem cell itself. So yeah, you'd want to have a kind of backup, right? You want to have a system in place that makes it robust where you can convert uh, non-stem cell to a stem cell. And I think that's a really important idea that you kind of now are scratching the surface of with your recent story in Nature, which is that, that where do these cells come from? The developmental origins of these in adult stem cells Apart from the fact that, you know, that intestinal organoids were among the first and the intestinal stem cells have been appreciated for a long time, we had very little idea of the developmental origins. I think your recent uh, story in nature that you could tell us a bit about and the implications thereof, it's really made a big difference. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, a, a, a phenomenal postdoc came to my lab in 14 uh, and he was, he, he was meant to do this control experiment. Uh, so in the literature, there, there was multiple papers already describing that there was LGL5 cells present within this fetal state. And it was assumed that these were the precursors mm -hmm. to the adult stem cell compound. But no one had done the quantitative experiment. No one had, had, had measured whether these could actually explain the growth of the organ. So this was, this was this was the control experiment that he was supposed to do as sort of like a minor part of his of his project. That control experiment took him five years. <laughs> <laughs> because what we discovered was that you know yes these cells do contribute to the adult stem cell compartment, but it, the expansion of these cells can only explain twenty percent of the growth of the tissue. So you know if we were to, by nature, rely on LGF five cells as the only source for growing an adult intestine. This would only give us 20%. We would be missing 80. We would all be dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, so this, this seminal discovery allowed us to then begin to, to, to address what other cells could be doing the job. And what we found was that you know, all the cells in the fetal intestine, mm. even the ones that look as if they're differentiated, they can contribute. Mm. And I think, you know, this, indeed shows the robustness. Uh, but if we go back to a paper we published last year in cell stem cell, you know, what we, what we observed was that during following severe damage, what happens to cells, and we believe that this can happen not only to stem cells, but also to more differentiated cells, is that they revert back into a fetal-like state. Mm -hmm. A fetal-like state that now we show is actually much more plastic than the state that we can observe during, uh, during steady-state homeostasis. Yeah, and you alluded to this before about the idea that you could induce stem cells, say, from a terminally or a more mature cell type. And I, that, like you said, is an, an amazing idea. You know, I feel like all the pillars of dogma are falling one at a time. Like, cells can't reverse. Okay, we can induce it. We can enforce it with transcription factors. But I think what you're talking about here is a different idea that it's, there's a physiological precedent for the body doing this under norm or you know under insult or whatever but there's a precedent in physiology do you think this is something that could apply to other stem cell niches and and all the dogma is going to fall in those as well or is that what you hope at least so, i think i think it's exactly the same is the case for the skin mm. uh, we have a 
paper coming out in Nature Cell Biology. Wow, you heard it here first, guys. Uh, we might have to edit that out. <laughs> we might have to edit that out. I presented it yesterday. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, but describing uh, that similarly, uh, cells seems to be born mm. even, uh, and they will then subsequently be told what to do mm. by their neighboring niche. So, so, so I think, I think, I think, I think this, this is a much more general uh, observation. And, and, and speaking with people in other fields, you know, it, it's, it's actually something that they're receptive to and, and, and something that they're now going back and trying to do the experiments in order to see whether this indeed is the case. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, think, I think we as scientists have a tendency to put cells into boxes and call them things. Mm -hmm. I don't think cells like to be in boxes. <laughs> uh, I think I think I think we need a much more uh, plastic or perhaps mathematical view of things. Mm. We should maybe consider thinking more in probabilities. That you don't, you know, you 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 draw up a hierarchy. You put some arrows in. Mm. You have an arrow going in one direction. But maybe we should put some probabilities on these arrows saying that, you know, there's a certain likelihood that you go in this direction. Maybe there's a, 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 a likelihood that's significantly smaller, but going in the opposite direction. And, and, and that, that, that this, is just, this can be reflected by, by, by a norm, uh, some, some normal distribution, some Poisson distributions, where, where, where cells, you know, depending on where they are in this distribution or in, in, in this spectre, have a smaller, higher likelihood of going in one direction or the other. Mm. Uh, yeah, I remember general chemistry in my training. There's those two arrows, right? Yeah. There's the equilibrium. And I, why shouldn't that apply in biology and molecular biology and all these complex systems? I mean, equilibrium is kind of the, at the fundament of, of everything, right? So, uh, yes, I, I think we re really need to revise and, and provide a more expansive view, as you're alluding to there. Um, but 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 if you, if you if you if you consider an arrow, we, we, we can put we can put an arrow on something if we are ninety five percent sure. Mm. So a forward arrow and a little reverse arrow. That, 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 reverse that, that, that arrow. means that even for all of the experiments that we do, you so, know, that, that there could be a five percent going in the other mm -hmm, direction, mm -hmm. and we just don't see it. Or when we see it, we discount it as an anomaly. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, just spell it out for us. I mean, this is this is. Like seminal ideas here, but of course, at this meeting, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the translational value. Uh, not too much emphasis, but it's a part of it. Spell it out for us. Like, how is this going to manifest? If if it were to manifest clinically, this idea, are we talking about like forget about cell therapy, putting cells in, just get the cells that are there to behave? Is that is that what you see as a future? So so I think I think we we are taking. We're taking two approaches to this. One, uh, we are expanding cells from fetal material uh, because what, what we also observe when we transplant these is that these are actually much more plastic than their adult counterpart. So if we take fetal cells, we transplant fetal cells from, say, the small intestine, put them into the colon, they actually become cola. So we published this in 2013. Mm -hmm. Very, it's a very robust system. 
However, if you take an adult small intestine, take the cells out, transplant them into a colon, they become small intestine. So we believe that if we can, if, if, if we, if we can expand fetal cells or cells in a fetal state, we could take adult cells out, maybe reprogram them back into a fetal state, mm -hmm. then this could be used as a, uh, as a cellular therapy that would be able to adopt the uh, required characteristic of where they end up in, uh, in, 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 in the adult system. Uh, so this is one approach. The other approach is to begin to identify therapeutical or therapeutically how we can go in and manipulate particular pathways in order to try and enforce this fetal state or fetal reprogramming. So then rely on cells within the individual to, uh, to participate, take part in, 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 in the repair of damaged organs. Got it. Um, okay, finally, uh, I read an interesting thing about your mantra uh, in the lab, which was, I don't know if you know that you have a mantra, but it's that you only want people to smile, or you only want people who smile, and they must not complain too much. This makes for better science. <laughs> Can you elaborate what's the, what's the rationale there? on Because I would say, you know, looking at you, you're, you're all smiles. I would say Denmark, is pre that's pretty much the mantra for Denmark. But how would you say, it, it, why do you apply that mantra? Are, is that really your mantra? I mean, you can Yeah, I, 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 I don't know whether that's my mantra. <laughs> you know, I, I, what, 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 what I tend to say is that, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't like people complaining. <laughs> <laughs> Who does? <laughs> uh, and and, and, and if, uh, if, if, if they complain too much, then I'll close down my lab <laughs> and find something else to do. <laughs> Yeah, well, but I say that with a smile. No, I see like an adjustment of the mantra. He says, I don't want to hear your complaints. He says it with a smile. Yeah. And then how can you complain? How can you complain in a lab where everything's so positive? Uh, Kim, thanks for joining us. I mean, I, I would love to, to take a visit to your lab to see how things work. It looks like you're running a great operation there. And it's no small part due to your tremendous energy and insight and creativity. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. Up next, we are super, super excited. I don't know if you could tell from my voice during this conversation to have Sir John Gurdon. Of course, needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. Recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, along with Shinya Yamanaka for the discovery that mature cells can be reprogrammed to become pluripotent. Okay, so we'll start with uh, in your talk, uh, and I know this is a story that many have heard famously, you were pressed away from science um, because you didn't perform well uh, right. on the test, right. right? yeah. which uh, I can imagine uh, how arbitrary that one measure, how that might have negatively affected the whole world, as we now realize. Uh, do you think the future leaders in science may not may be unrecognized because it's such a diversity of yeah. influences now that that lead to the next big innovation? It seems like science really isn't necessarily the best training oh, for the future of science. What do you think about that? Yes. Well, in my case, um, I I was totally rejected as science uh, as a student at a school, and then. I had to get back into it. It has always been my interest, mm. and my parents were good enough to 
pay for extra education to re-educate me into science, having been removed from it at school. So I was extremely lucky to be able to benefit from that, which would be impossible now, I think. So mm. I was very lucky. And um, it was possible at that time if you showed a real interest in something and you uh, persevered to get back into the subject that you felt you really were interested in. Mm. Mm. So that's how it was. Um, and do you think with, you know, you've had so many trainees at this point, do you think that maybe it's become more difficult to to get reinvested yes. in science? Is, is science more, are, there, are the walls higher? Is the barrier to entry higher, you think, for yes, to practicing science? Yes, I think that's science? right. Um, I had uh, almost no qualification at all. Hmm. And um, with an extra year of training, was able to get in, which would be extremely difficult now. I, I doubt if one could do that, at least not nothing like as straightforwardly as could happen in the past. So mm -hmm. I think it has got much more difficult. You have to show real interest and success in your chosen field at an early stage. And mm -hmm. I don't think that was, in my experience, in the way that it happened those years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, famously, the, your work seminal though it was was i wouldn't say unrecognized but i think the import wasn't recognized and the dogma remained that mature cells could not be yeah. you know deprogrammed reprogrammed yeah. so all that in mind well two things was there you know of course there's vindication being recognized but was there a special vindication being recognized after so many years of, of maybe lacking the recognition that that you deserved, or on the, by the same token, were you actively frustrated with that? Or were mm. you just moving forward with your science yeah. in those years? No, well, when my results started being successful, um, senior people came by and they were, were very, very supportive. Not all, but many were. And they, they said, well, this is a really interesting result. We must help you uh, progress. So that one, and this was how I came to be a postdoc student in Caltech, because by chance the the head of Caltech came by where I was in Oxford, and I was introduced to him, and he said, "Well, this is all very interesting. If you want a postdoc, I can offer you one in Caltech." So just like that, I mean, it was no examination. He just said, "You you can have a job." Like uh, you said, the barriers to entry were lower then, yes. Yes, so there was uh, barriers were, were low at that time. Um, so yeah, also that work um, when it was published, I I didn't know this before your talk uh, yesterday, but it's, I think it's such a great little nugget that you just got you never got the reviews back, you just got the proofs. And of course, I mean, who knows if that was customary at the time, but I think it's it's something that would never happen, obviously, in the modern era. And you talked a bit about how you, you were lamenting, I think, a bit how restrictive and said that the level of scrutiny that's given. Uh, could you just elaborate on that specifically why you think it can have such a negative influence on yeah. innovation. 
Do you think, though, it ultimately it's like a, in this egalitarian capitalist system that it ultimately leads to the best work rising to the top? Or do you think there's a possibility that yeah. stories that really deserve and need to be told and shared are yeah. maybe not getting the visibility? I think that's possible, yes, because there will be a tough editor will reject everything. Mm-hmm. In fact, editors of the top journals feel they have to get rid of at least 95% of everything they get in front of them. First, their first job is to find out what's wrong, how, how they can reject everything. Right. Now, that's uh, their main aim. Rather a negative view would be better if they could say, is there something actually really interesting mm-hmm. and can we encourage it rather than just get rid of everything as far as possible? All right, finally, what's left to do? Do you wake up with like, you know, I've done it. I did that amazing thing, and yeah, I got the things that are going on, but I have a deep sense of satisfaction, or do you feel like you got a lot of unfinished business? So I do, yes, yes. The project I'm involved with is only beginning to get to the point of preparing it to uh, put it in the, in the front of an editor. Um, and um, that's, uh, that, that is, I mean, uh, to me, there'd be a very strong reason for wanting to um, I take the current work through to the point of a publication. I can feel that quite strongly. All right. I just I know I said that was the last, but I have one final request. This is the yeah. focus uh, of this conference is the youth, right? The young scientists. Could, what advice would you give to the you know the postdocs and trainees yes. at this conference? One of them asked me that at lunch today, and um, I suppose the best is if you have some idea that you thinks really interesting and you can put that you could pursue that persevere to show that it can be tackled and you have some idea how that almost always leads to a successful career Mm. and um it's um i have one student at the moment of that kind who had a had a very clever idea and was absolutely dedicated to pursue it Mm -hmm. even though we couldn't help him very much he, he chose to come and do it in our group, but uh, he, he's, he's really been an example and he got a, uh, within a year and a half of starting, he already had a paper in hand in a very high journal, so he's mm. done terribly well, but he had the idea himself. And he persisted. And he persisted, yes, yes, yes. Well, that's the advice we wanted. Thank you, Dr. Gurdon, for uh, joining us. Right, thank you. All right, guys, I got Dan Besser, Daniel Besser. I like to call him Dan because I'm yeah. an American. And mm. I like to, you know, make it something that it's not. But his name is Daniel Besser. He's the managing director of the German Stem Cell Network, and he had the grace to agree to a short interview on his impressions of the meeting. Dan, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> an That's old okay, Daniel. An old friend. Thank yeah, you. yeah, Thank bro. You for we go joining. way back, way back. <laughs> so. Uh, Daniel, thank you for uh, joining us today. Sure. Seriously. And um, uh, why don't you begin by telling us what, what it is you do as a managing director of the Journal Steps on Well, I basically take care of the everyday business of the network. That is to organize workshops, organize the one conference a year, the annual conference of the GSCN, which is coming up in September, mm-hmm. end of September this year. Mm-hmm. But we're also publishing annual magazine, uh, you know, scheduling journalists which write different 
text and documents. Uh, we release white papers and all this has to be scheduled to involve the right scientists, um, talk to the politicians, talk to the public, organize uh, the uni STEM day, which we have once a year for like in Berlin, we have 200, around 200 students coming from high schools, mm -hmm. but this is organized all over Germany and this has to be um, uh, scheduled and, and harmonized that everybody's happy in the end of the day. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I'm not doing it alone. I have two people working with me. So, you know, we, we split, but I oversee the whole thing. But I mean, obviously, I'm also controlled by an executive board and a president and, you know, yes. things like that. We all got to answer it's, to somebody. It's an association. It's an association and non-for-profit and, you know. Okay, well, I mean, aside from that responsibility, I think you are, I think a lot of people would agree with me, is that you have a tremendous visibility in the field because you're earnest, you have a, tr a, a deep interest, and you participate. You're someone who, who is a natural coordinator because everybody knows you and everybody knows that your intent is genuine and earnest. And, you know, you always stand up and ask questions <laughs> with the mic, but in a way that's not challenging. It's genuinely like, okay, so what are we going to do? It's always right. progressive. Right. It's always constructive. It's the best kind of co conference interaction mm, I think you can mm, have. So mm. that's how I've always appreciated you. What do you think of this meeting? Tell me. As all, I, I know that you've been to as many sessions as you right. possibly could. Tell me, what has stood out for you? I mean, it's it's always great to come to the ICCR. I mean, once a year, that's the meeting to be. If you are in stem cell research, if you want to see the progress in the field, also in terms of what's coming up in clinical developments and so on and so forth. And they're obviously always like uh, a bunch of highlights. Uh, this year, I mean, what stuck out for me was uh, John Dick's talk. Mm -hmm. I mean, John, I really like it. He's very humble. Also, he got the award. Uh, I don't know what the award it was, was the called. The award for innovation. Right. So, but but his address, you know, also when he received the award, and also his his talk was, I think, was amazing. You know. Yeah, I remember he said to his wife, "You." stood beside me in the good times yeah exactly i mean that's like kind of really taking yeah, right? you you know that's, you feel that? that's really cool so, yeah you know? it's always great i think in science when you see people succeed right. Right. that they they retain that humility because there's been so much failure that led to that success right. what do you think about in terms of the theme of this year the youth Right. I mean, it's just beside John Dick, there were obviously oh, other right. other continue. great talks okay. and so on and so forth. I don't, I mean, if I take one, I would take Salva as Benita. He talked in one of the concurrent sessions on aging and circadian rhythms. Mm -hmm. And I think he, he has done really great, great work in the in the recent years as well. So just to take one out. Uh, um, obviously, Chuck Murray just talked on, on, on heart development. I, I think, you know, we're really making headway in, in direction of translating these things also into the clinics and, mm. you know. Yeah, maybe. I think that we're really on the cusp of something. I, I noted that. I mean, it's been a couple of years since I've been at an ISSCR, but for me, it's, I really feel like we're on the cusp. Mm. You know, this organoid yeah. thing when you're seeing right. hair grow. Right. It's like a definitive measure, you know mm, what I mean? You mm. can't see exactly. these liver organoids filtering. Mm, you can't see mm. the alveolar 
organoids, you know. But you see a hair, you see a, a, hair. A, a, a human hair growing out of a mouse. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so cool. ironic, right? Yeah, because cool. it's not life or yeah, death, yeah. right? But like, who, it's such who, a who had that example. talk? That who? was Carl Kohler. Ah, yeah, yeah. That Carl was, Kohler. So yeah, yeah, yeah I think Carl that's Kohler. really captured yeah. the imagination right. of a lot of the young investigators right. here. And uh, back to that question about the youth. So you alluded to earlier how, you know, it's a struggle. We talked about John Dick's long struggle. Right. And you must know, I mean, like all scientists know, about perseverance in science is really the, yeah. the ultimate. Uh, the rat race. Right, you know, <laughs> it's what you need to be able to do. And I think a lot of what I hear from the young people is how mm. difficult it is to persevere in the face of not exactly. even the failure. Like mm. everybody's willing to fail, but the competition, yeah. you know, it just seems like this. There's the, sh op the, the, the volume of opportunities mm. is shrinking uh, and uh, yeah. the, the demand is, is only increasing. And the focus this year was the youth. How do you think that's working out with this, this year? I so? think we have a big problem. We still have a big problem. I think it is an important issue which we have to take on. Uh, how do we motivate uh, young people to go into this career? But we have to give them options. And we have to give you know, more than five to ten best percent options in the field. And I think that is what's missing. So we're still using, you know, the, the, the young power, if you want, mm -hmm. between, let's say, 25, 35. And then we say, okay, the, 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 the best five to 10% can proceed in academia. <laughs> and what is then the rest doing? Then we are talking about alternative careers, but mm. if 90% have to go into another career, then it's not alternative anymore, right? right. Then it, then it's, and this is something which we really have to tackle at mm. some point. Do you because, mean in terms of like filling out that 90% with other opportunities outside of academia? Or do you mean us, that yeah, making more room in academia? Yes, I, I think that we, we should think about creating more positions which are not PI positions, but which, which are in labs to really uh, establish a, a, a continuum also, right? Mm -hmm. So quite often you see in labs that a person comes in, a person goes out, and with it goes a lot of uh, expertise, technologies, and so on and so forth. So I think we should create positions, but that's my take on it, you know? In, in labs which which stay longer than just like three, four, five years, right? Yeah, I think that's a great idea because not everybody wants to run the lab. Right. I mean, it's not for everybody, right. but you don't have to leave right. science. Right. It's the upper route thing, right? right? That you got to move into right. this position that's, you know, preordained a hundred years now. Right. Or mm. failure. So, right. yeah, I agree with you. We got to right. create an alternative mm. that's viable. I mean, these are the most brilliant people I think in so. our community, yeah, right? Yeah, I think so. You know? So, so and, and the other thing which, uh, which is always like troublesome is, is like you, you go to a conference, you present a poster or you give a talk and everybody's patting on your back, right? And saying, oh, great stuff and so on. Then you hand it in, you, you get the reviews back and you think, are this the same people which just <laughs> told me on the conference it's a great story and now suddenly I get all this like kind of and this really what makes mm -hmm. it hard you know so maybe we should also think about you know being a little bit more real on conferences but also looking at other people's work a little bit more positive rather than like kind of trashing it when I'm in the in the dark so to say as a reviewer right, right.
Right. Yeah. But both I mean, sides of that. We yes. could do better. We could right. be a little bit more constructively critical. Right. Because no one likes to look the, into someone's face right. and be like, you know, you could. Right. They just say, oh, great job. And right. then they move on. Right. And then they wait for the reviews to come and they right. say, yeah, you should have done this. You're right. Exactly. You're right. You know, that's I mean, what I mean. So that's where sides. I think. You know, we on both sides, we could be a little bit more real there and we could also be a little bit more fair when we do the reviews and not like trash things, which maybe, uh, you know, they're good, you know, yeah. so and at least there's a kernel of goodness, right? right? right. There's something that can be exactly. Yeah. So on that constructive note, next year, Boston, Boston, what do you think? What's your greatest hope, your greatest dream for this? If you could have any. Uh, you know, plenary mm, lead presidential mm, talk. Right. What would they be telling you? Now, besides your own research, what right. would, what would be the story you think that would really t take home the show? I mean, if we if we could get some some cool news from Lawrence Studer or Marlon mm. Palmer or Roger Parker or mm. Jun Takahashi mm. on the development in the Parkinson field, and maybe like really see the first patient being mm. treated and having positive effects with a stem cell derived mm. product. Then I think that would be really, wow. really, really and we're cool. We're close you know? enough. I yeah, think you're so. right. I think yeah. it's it's like conceit though. Right. Early data, a year right. is not right. it's right. not far off. Right. Whether or not they'll share, I mean, guys, please share. But uh, <laughs> it remains to be seen. Sure. But right. there are they are. I mean, I, I like their approach because they work together. You know, so mm -hmm. they don't see them. For sure, there is a competition, but at the same time, in this G-Force, PD, they, they work together, they try to develop the things together. And that, I, I think, is a good example of how internationally it, things can be made brought forward. Mm -hmm. um, and we see now similar things happening maybe for the retinal pigment epithelial mm -hmm. cells. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I like the stuff Michele De Luca is doing with uh, epidemiolysis bullosa, but also with the eyes and, and, and the other skin projects they are having there. I think great stuff is happening. But for me, in fact, Boston is, is the next step, but the step afterwards is Hamburg, right? Mm -hmm. And Hamburg is really our home territory, our home turf. And I, I hope that lots of things are happening there you know and, yeah. well, and okay. that's 2021 hamburg so everybody coming out to Make germany note, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you should october fest but i guess that's yes. not in the card no that's all the way down <laughs> in the south so you know hamburg is more like My kind mistake. of the the the, 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 yeah, well, the, 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 the sea is close by, mm. two seas, there's the Baltic Sea and the North Sea, and you know, I'm you have a beautiful river and beautiful harbor, and it's, it's a great city to visit, so, you know. All right, guys, Hope put it in the books. In Hamburg, put it know. in the books. If we don't see great things in Boston, maybe we'll wait to see them in Hamburg, and that can be in your hometown. You'll bring yeah. down the house. Yeah, that would be cool. Danielle. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, my man. It's been great talking. Thanks, Daylin. That brings us to the end of part one of three of our special mini-series of ISSCR episodes. Check back in two weeks for part two and let us know what you think. Did you like today's episode? Was there something we could have done better? You tell us. We're going to try and meet your needs. You can reach us on Twitter at stem cell podcast or by email at info at stem cell podcast.com see you guys next week for our regularly scheduled episode in a couple weeks for part two of the mini series you guys are going to love this 